Hi everyone, John Huang here, and welcome back to another episode of Hoofbeats, where we challenge you to solve diagnostically difficult real-world cases alongside experienced clinicians. And as always, I'm here with my partner, Cindy Fang. Thank you, John. So two weeks ago, we challenged you to solve the case of an 85-year-old woman who presented with psychotic symptoms just after being discharged from a hospitalization for complicated diverticulitis. And we asked you to not just solve the case, but to commit to your diagnoses by submitting them through the HumanDx platform. And honestly, Cindy, I wasn't too sure how this would play out. People are busy. The app takes a full minute to download. So we were pleasantly surprised and really appreciative of the number and quality of responses that we got. Collectively, you all came up with no fewer than 39 distinct diagnoses, right, to explain her findings. Many of these were common, which we also appreciate. The segment is called Hoofbeats, after all. Some were new, at least to me. Um, Cindy, have you ever heard of antibiomania? No, I have not. Apparently that's a term. I googled it, so it's true. <laughs> I can confirm that, that it's real. And I'm going to be using that term a lot more in the future if I can help it. Mostly, though, the diagnoses tended to fall into three broad categories. CNS process, infection, adverse effect of a medication that was given or withheld, which, if you remember, is very similar to what our discussant thought. There was less agreement about what to do next. Collectively, you suggested 31 discrete tests or treatments, and there was healthy debate. Some folks wanted to stop the steroids. Other folks wanted to increase them. Some suggested aggressive volume repletion. Others wanted fluid restriction. And one brave soul simply wrote, wait. Well, so Cindy, this was your patient, actually, so I figured we could hear about the test results in the order our listeners wanted them? Sure, fair. Okay. So the number one test that our listeners wanted, first, head CT. It was normal. No acute intracranial abnormality. And that was a uh, with contrast or without contrast? Without contrast. And it was done uh, the day that she arrived? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. The next test they wanted, urinalysis. It was completely within normal limits. That, now that surprises me. She was just hospitalized, had a Foley surgery, clean UA. It's pretty impressive. The urine culture? It was clean. Clean. Okay. Blood cultures? It was also clean. Okay. They wanted a chest x-ray. Areas of linear atelectasis. <laughs> okay. No acute intrapulmonary pathology. A surprising number of people wanted the TSH. I honestly wouldn't have thought of this. Did you, get, you, did you happen to get that? No, we did not. Urine chemistries. I think a lot of people were debating the significance of the serum sodium. No. I kind of assumed the hyponatremia was, a, was an epiphenomenon. Lumbar puncture. We did not get that either. You must have made the diagnosis before you got to that point. What about some people wanted a brain MRI? Also not obtained. Huh. CT abdomen and pelvis? So it did show um, ileus and small bowel thickening slash enteritis, which was interpreted as, as post-op changes. Um, there was no abscess or no fluid collections. Okay. The next test people wanted, C. diff PCR. C. diff PCR actually returned positive. And you got that off of the, because she had the hemicolectomy, so that was taken off of the ostomy output? Exactly. People asked for ANA? No, compliments? ANA compliments were not sent. Someone actually asked for a uh, CTA of the chest looking for PE, which again also kind of surprised me, but I figured I'd ask. 
It was actually obtained and it revealed a segmental pulmonary embolism in the right upper lobe. I know, I know. Uh, it was a surprise for me too. I don't know why the decision was made in the emergency room. Um, I assume it was for the tachycardia or maybe she was hypoxic down there and wasn't recorded. Anything else that you ordered that came back positive? No, we didn't mention? nothing else. I'm surprised though that no one ordered the Utox. I did not get it myself, but would have been a reasonable test to get, right? Yes, 85 nursing home resident, <laughs> clearly. Hey, I mean, uh, think about the uh, benzo use at home for her anxiety disorder, right? That's fair. Never assume. Mm-hmm. So, Cindy, what happened in the hospital course? What ended up being your diagnosis? Um, so initially, infection dominated everyone's thinking. So even though there wasn't an obvious source, she was started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. The serum sodium came back to her baseline about three one thirty spontaneously. She was started on systemic anticoagulation, um, but no one was convinced that was the cause of anything. After a day or two, she was not getting better, still confused, still psychotic. When the C. diff came back positive, and so we added the oral vancomycin, and within a day, her mental status began to improve. Um, her white count declined, and with all the other tests came back negative. We started to think maybe this was all delirium from C. diff infection. Um, ultimately, she made a full recovery, came back to her baseline mental status, and was discharged to a nursing home again. And the, the sole treatment that was continued was the, was the oral vancomycin. Mm-hmm. Okay, so C. diff infection causing delirium. How confident were you with that diagnosis? I mean, C. diff is a diagnosis that makes some sense uh, considering who she is. But yet, thinking about it carefully, there are definitely some problems with that theory. You know, I think this is a useful opportunity to talk about the process of diagnostic validation. We all practice gathering histories from our patients. We practice generating differentials. How do we make sure that we've hit the right diagnosis? I agree. The stakes are really high. Accepting the incorrect diagnosis hurts our patients. Our patients will get mistakenly labeled and treated. and also hurts us too when we take away the wrong learning points and commit the wrong illness scripts to our memory. So before we accept the diagnosis, we need to take a moment to reflect on its strengths and weaknesses. And I think this takes the form of a checklist. Item one on that checklist, ask yourself, did I consider the base rate of this diagnosis? In other words, is what I'm proposing a common disease, or am I already going out on a limb by reaching for a zebra? Ah, we we talked about this in episode one, right? A common way to get into trouble is to focus on how similar our patient is to the illness group of a patient without considering how common or rare that disease actually is. I mean, a lot of people come to your clinic complaining of headaches, sweating spells, high blood pressure, but not all of them have Theo. (laughs) My experience, none of them have Theo. In this case, though, Cindy, I would argue we are invoking a pretty common diagnosis especially considering the population this patient comes from, recently hospitalized, surgery, just finished antibiotics. We're not battling the odds here to start. Fair? Mm, Fair. So second item on the checklist, Cindy, is our diagnosis adequate? In other words, can it explain all or most of the patient's significant abnormal findings? 
Oh, so in other words, if we accept momentarily that she does have C diff, is there anything left over that doesn't fit? Exactly. Well put. Most findings in this case are non-specific: the delirium, leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, hyponatremia. I mean, C diff could explain all those. Though many other things can explain all those, I don't associate C diff as classically a disease that causes delirium. But literally anything in an elderly lady can cause delirium. I mean, I can sneeze on a patient and she will turn delirious the next day. Yeah, <laughs> don't sneeze on your elderly patients. All right, third item on the checklist, which I think closely related but distinct concept: the diagnosis must be coherent. So, in other words. Does the patient have most or all of the findings that we would expect if they in fact had the disease? And does everything make sense causally? The linkages, for example, I think it's worth noting that she initially failed to improve until she was started on C diff treatment. After which she quickly improved and made a full recovery. So her diagnosis and her hospital course, in that sense, are coherent. She behaves as we would expect if she truly had that disease, C diff. Well, obviously, correlation is not causation. I mean, who's to say she didn't improve just because she was removed from that nursing home, or maybe、uh, they were giving her a completely wrong dose of steroids and making her psychotic? I mean, it's not impossible. Right, handoff errors, or for all we know, maybe the radiator in her room was giving off carbon monoxide.、Yeah. In all seriousness, I- I'm willing to accept her clinical trajectory fits the diagnosis. But let's ask ourselves: What about the diagnosis is not coherent? So here's where I'm going to challenge you, Cindy. Number one,、um, C diff, I think, is supposed to cause diarrhea. If she had C diff, where's the diarrhea? I think the biggest weakness in this theory. I mean, somewhere between three to twenty-six percent of hospitalized adults are asymptomatic carriers of C diff, depending on what studies you look at. One study specifically reported a carrier rate of five to seven percent in elderly patients coming from nursing homes, like our patient. So this is the reason you want to be careful not to test everyone. You generally want to test patients who are having diarrhea. I assume, though, actually, now that I think about it, this patient had an ostomy, right? So she's having semi-liquid stool all the time. I mean, how can you tell? Was she having an increase in ostomy output? We could see that she was having a fear among the liquid output.、Uh, wasn't like liters and liters and liters, but it was a good amount. We were not informed that she was having any kind of increased output or changes in consistency in the nursing home. So that being said, I mean she was, you know, coming in psychotic, was refusing. To answer questions or physical exam, the nursing home wasn't really charting the stool output. Just because there was no mention or report of diarrhea, does that mean there was actually no diarrhea? Right. Absence of evidence, as they say, is not evidence of absence. At least when it comes to an unreliable historian with no collateral sources of information. Another possibility. I mean, the alias on the CT was presumed to be post-op, but could it be a manifestation of C diff? It is a rare presentation of C diff. I usually think of patients. With C diff causing paralytic ileus, present with really bad fever, high leukocytosis, really bad abdominal pain, ill appearing on their way to develop、um, toxic megacolon, they just are sicker. I guess occasionally they can initially present benign, but they they would progress pretty rapidly. I don't know if our patient 
was sick enough to fit that picture. There are rare case reports of C. diff enteritis in post-colectomy patients, and some of them do present with ileus, but I can't say we know enough about it. It's just not 100% satisfying, right? Yeah, I agree. All right, well, <clears throat> here's another challenge. You said that she got two antibiotics for her perforated diverticulitis, which I assume were Cipro and Metronidazole. Us, cepidoxine, actually. Cepidoxine, okay. And metronidazole. Okay. All right, so then how did she get C. diff if she was already on metronidazole? Metronidazole treats C. diff. That's true. There was a short period of time after she finished her antibiotics and before she got sick and came to the hospital. I also think it's worth mentioning that metronidazole has an inferior cure rate compared to P.O. Vanco. That's true. It's significantly worse than Vanco. I think the studies typically show a cure rate from 70 to 80%. So this is one of the reasons that the IDSA actually doesn't recommend it as first-line therapy for C. diff anymore of any severity. As of earlier this year, I believe the guidelines have been updated. The fact that she was on cepidoxine at the same time was probably relevant. Um, quinolones, beta-lactams, clindamycin, those are antibiotics strongly associated with C. diff. That's, that's a fair point. Another concern I have, if she did have C. diff, why didn't a CT abdomen show pseudomembranous colitis? Well, based on what you said, so the CT didn't show pseudomembranes or any of the classic CT hallmarks for C. diff, like the accordion sign, right? But my understanding is that you often don't see those things. The most common CT findings in C. diff are nonspecific ones that you see in many forms of colitis, like a wall thickening or periclonic stranding. That's fair. Maybe her steroid use could have affected the appearance of her colon on the CT, right? I mean, it does temper inflammation. Okay, well, Cindy, we've talked about base rate, adequacy, coherence of our working diagnosis. And based on our discussion so far, I think we're a little uncomfortable. Diagnosis of C. diff isn't perfectly coherent with what we know about this patient and her illness. Uh, and I think that just highlights the need for our fourth and last uh, checkbox, which is, are there other plausible diagnoses that we have not sufficiently excluded? We can revisit the differential from our discussions and from our listeners. I think we have to acknowledge that a normal HCT does not fully exclude some of the diagnoses in the CNS bucket, right? For example, cerebral venous thrombosis can be missed on HCT, um, you really need an MRI or MR venogram if you want to look at that. That's true. And along the same lines, I can think of several cases in personal experience where an early stroke was missed because the initial head CT was, it was read as negative, but it was, it was too early. And um, they are infectious things, autoimmune encephalitis, vasculitis. You ideally would need a lumbar puncture or MRI or MR angiogram. Hmm. That being said, something these, these all have in common, the fact that she improved without specific treatment for any of these entities is not very coherent, I think, with the hypothesis that she sustained an intracranial catastrophe. So, Dr. Shapiro brought up the idea of adrenal insufficiency because she's chronically on steroids. We haven't excluded that, right? The fact that she isn't hypotensive, hyperkalemic, or does not have a metabolic acidosis shouldn't really reassure us, since we wouldn't expect all those things in tertiary adrenal insufficiency. Well, were we at least able to confirm that she was receiving her 
usual dose of steroid at the outside facility. I mean, I can easily imagine something like that getting lost during handoff and her not getting steroid. Actually, I don't have to imagine that. I've seen that. Yes, we confirmed that she was receiving her appropriate dose. Along the same lines, we confirmed that she did not receive any benzos either during her prior hospitalization or at the nursing home. So benzo intoxication or withdrawal was unlikely. Well, keeping with the category of medications, I think it's worth mentioning that metronidazole has also been known to cause encephalopathy and confusion for decades, which is, I think, another reason it's, it's kind of falling out of favor, I think. Um, if you told me that she had been on Cipro, I'd, I'd be even more concerned. I mean, the FDA has been warning about the adverse neuropsychiatric effects of those medications you know, for years. Psychosis, mania, encephalopathy, seizures. You know. Time course for that is a little odd, right? I mean, she got better while taking the antibiotics in the hospital, got discharged, finished the antibiotics, and then two days later got worse and came to the hospital again. I mean, just doesn't fit here. Right. That, that's if we're taking the history at face value. But I agree, uh, less coherent in that regard, though difficult to disprove. All right. So we talked about some major things to think about when validating your working diagnosis, base rate, adequacy, coherence, and competing theories. So Zhang, you were not involved in this case. Can you tell me what you think about the diagnosis? Okay. I have to be careful to be diplomatic here. Well, based on our discussion, so we said C. diff is common. It adequately explains her admittedly nonspecific presentation. Her illness responded to treatment, as I would expect, but the diagnosis isn't perfectly coherent in other ways, especially in that we don't see the diarrhea, the large increase in ostomy output that I'd expect. That really bothers me. I mean, we came up with some explanations for why that might be, but that bothers me. That, along with the fact that there are some plausible alternatives that remain. So overall, I think that the diagnosis of C. diff here is possible, I'd say maybe even probable, Certainly, it's beyond my threshold to treat. I would definitely treat. But uh, maybe we haven't proven it beyond reasonable doubt. Well, you know what's funny? When she came in, her chief complaint was, they are poisoning me with the pills. I mean, I would say she was right all along. Yeah, I think this is where we quote William Osler, but I think that's been overdone. So now what? What do we do with a case like this, where we have a suspected, possible, probable diagnosis, but nothing definite? Well, you know, I think as doctors, we're relatively comfortable with the reality that we have to manage patients in spite of this kind of uncertainty, right? I mean, we're not too proud in the right clinical context. I mean, I, I see this. I come in in the morning. I read resident HMPs. We are not too proud to treat that wheezing, coughing patient with antibiotics and NEBS and Lasix, uh, at least until we figure more out. Hey, they, they get better, right? I think we're asking ourselves, how do we learn from cases like this? Especially considering that the vast majority of patients that we see in the hospital leave uh, with possible or suspected diagnoses, not definite ones. We are missing out on a lot of potential learning if we simply write these cases off as, you know, who knows, really. Well, to start, this is one reason we should keep a personal journal of patients we encountered. We'll never know when we were wrong or when we were right if we never look to see what happened to our patients after they discharged. I agree, Cindy. Thought leaders in the field of clinical reasoning, they stress this point time and time again. 
We cannot wait for the feedback to come and find us, whether it's the occasional update from your colleague in the clinic or ICU or that chance encounter with the patient on their next admission. Passive follow-up, it's too infrequent, too skewed to be helpful. Speaking of active follow-up reminds me of those bumper stickers on the back of the trucks. The ones that say, I might be driving like I don't give a flock, but how's my driving? Call one eight seven seven one two three four five. Right. Yeah, I, I always wondered what kind of feedback you'd, you'd get from that. Second, get a second opinion. It can help widen or focus our differential and generate many useful clinical questions. Mm-hmm. I love being able to turn you know, to the person next to me at work, ask their thoughts. I love listening to, you know, our discussants like Dr. Shapiro talk about about what they're thinking. Nothing is going to ever replace the benefits of consulting with a peer or a local expert. But don't forget to consider the emerging non-traditional sources of second opinions as well. I mean, we just crowdsourced a second opinion to a whole community of invested clinicians through HumanDX. And if you are a misanthrope like me, maybe computer-assisted diagnosis is a better fit for you. Maybe a visual DX, Isabel? And third, maybe we should be better coming to terms with our uncertainty. I think there's this naive part of me that's always just assumed that the primary purpose of a doctor is to make a diagnosis. And I personally, I blame the media for this, right? Cultural depictions of doctors. We only look cool when we're doing one of two things, saving lives with a procedure like CPR surgery or saving lives by some diagnostic coup, Dr. House style. But that's not really the primary purpose of a doctor, right? I mean, the primary purpose of a doctor is to treat the patients. Right, exactly, Cindy. So when a patient comes in with symptoms, it could be anything. Our job is to constrain that uncertainty as much as possible. And then, more than anything, help our patients navigate through, through the uncertainty that's left. Well, that's funny because I think as doctors, we do have the tendency to be allergic to uncertainty. Yeah. I've lost track of the number of times I've been reading discharge summaries on my patients, and I found my intern has written this lovely story uh, about the hospital course with the neatly wrapped and presented final diagnosis, when in fact I knew it was it's much more questionable than that. Does that, does that ever happen to you? Oh, all the time. I mean, people write um, chest pains due to costochondritis or CHF exacerbation is secondary to um, medication non-compliance. Um, it's all the patient's fault for not taking the Lasix. But I know when on rounds, that's not what we said. I'm trying to get better at acknowledging the uncertainty, my uncertainty, openly, so that maybe they can feel empowered to, to do the same. You know, write, cause for her symptoms, unclear at present. You know the meteorologic models that scientists construct to predict the weather? Or like the standard model that particle physicists created that predicted the existence of new particles. You know, these models, they're imperfect. They're approximations, but that doesn't stop them from being useful. You know, and I feel like in that way, diagnosis in medicine, it's very similar. It's a model that we construct based on our observations of the behavior of our system, the human body, our patient's body. Um, And it allows us to predict the way that that system will behave in the future. So diagnosis is a means to an end. And when the models fail, That's an opportunity for us to learn more. As we were wrapping up the case, Dr. Shapiro touched on this idea. But I think as doctors, we we try to to come up with the the final conclusion. 
right? And what the yeah. final word was on the, the, the case. And a lot of medicine is not satisfying in that way. But what's really satisfying, right, is walking through all the possibilities here and, and thinking about all the possibilities and what's my threshold to test, not test. It was clearly different than your threshold to test and not test. Um, and that's the, the difference in, you know, different practitioners. And it's always interesting to talk about cases because I think that that gets you a level of comfort and being able to make your decisions. I think when you've been proven, when you've been proven wrong a few times, you know, and, you know, your confidence, I think, goes in waves and it's gone in waves my whole career. You know, I've been really confident. I think I know everything. And then, like, the next week, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Right? The storm doesn't stop. <laughs> I thought that the waves would even out in the end. But good Lord, because the last four years, let me tell you. And I think, but I think that's the beauty of it. And that's, and that's what makes it fun is that you're, you're never fully comfortable in your, your own shoes. And, but you do learn to enjoy it more. And you learn to sort of enjoy the anxiety a little bit. At least I have. Well, that should do it for this episode. Thank you to Drs. Neil Shapiro, Marty Freed for weighing in on this episode. Special thanks to our audio editor for this episode, Richard Chen. Thank you to all of you, our listeners, folks over at Human DX, uh, who helped make this, you know, this collaboration possible. As always, an honorable mention to our colleague, Dr. Steve Liu. Sorry, Steve. Turns out uromycetosis, not an actual diagnosis. Try again next time. Zhang and I are always looking to try something new. If you have a case you would like to submit for discussion, or someone you know who you would like to hear as a discussion, or if you are just interested in developing and hosting an episode, please, please get in touch with us. Send us an email at coreimpodcast at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at, at coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Please reason forward responsibly. And just to clarify, HumanDX is a multi-institutional effort independent of NYU Clinical Correlations and CoreIM. Thank you for joining us with CoreIM. I'm John Huang. And I'm Cindy Fain. See you next time.